From the Majority Trust, it's The Messy Truths, a show about leaders, shapers, and movers in the social sector, and all the messy truths behind the work they do. We're starting a new Founders series where we interview founders of new nonprofits in Singapore to unpack their stories, struggles, successes, and all. We believe every founder has a story to tell and can't wait for you to hear them. I'm Martin Tan, and on the show today, how Lim Jing Zhou's heart for the community led him to start Mapati Kakis, a community organization supporting residents who are affected by the ongoing public rental relocation at Mapati Road. Welcome to the Messy Truths, Jing Zhou. Welcome. Thank you for having me here, Martin. Now, it's, it's a real pleasure having you, man. I know you from Kasia days, so tell me a little bit more about Mapati Kakis. Right. Well, actually, the, both teams work, the Kasia Resettlement team and the Mapati Kaki teams, have a lot of convergence. It's, of course, built on one another, right? Mapati Kaki, maybe we start with there first. Uh, it was a team that was started in 2020, not just by me. I was part of the founding team. A team of people who were on the ground with the community members at Mapati Road, right? This were three rental flats, blocks, and... It was at the peak of COVID, right? We just started learning what COVID was, started to grapple with what it means to have to deal with COVID. And that was, of course, when our first uh, circuit breaker was announced. And what happened then was, I guess, a ground-up group that started being engaged and connected with the community. And from there, then I think, try to looking at some pandemic relief efforts, doing what we can, small little ways of helping make it a little bit easier to get through this very difficult time that we all share together, but even more difficult for people who have to deal with less, have a lot of scarcity and a lot of other issues and challenges that they are working through. And uh, soon after, in November, then that was when the relocation was announced. HDB delivered the relocation letters to residents. But this was not entirely sort of unexpected or new. I think when I stepped into my party, I already knew that this was a very old uh, rental housing estate. It's really scheduled for relocation soon. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you don't know when exactly, only HDB and the government knows, but you know that it's on that list, right? You look at the age of uh, which are the oldest rental housing blocks remaining. And uh, it's not just us with the data, but also the community members themselves who would tell us things like, yeah, you know, they just built the MRT station there. It means it's, it's going to be sooner or later time for us to move. And so, lo and behold, it was true. And with that, we started to quickly think about... And it was it kind of a interesting timing because that was also when the COVID pandemic was dying down at the end of the first year. And we were wondering, okay, what do we then do now? And then now there's the kind of relocation happening. So we thought, okay, maybe the community might need some support. Maybe we can do something for them as they are being displaced, as they are being relocated and resettled. So that's how we pivoted to kind of relocation support. Uh, and that's what we continue to do to today. And I think the important thing for both teams, what CRT and uh, MK, right, in short, is that even though you kind of have this different focuses at different point of time, right? MK started from COVID relief and then relocation. Uh, CRT started from relocation and then now became more of community care, community care work. What? doesn't change, you know, even if this kind of focuses or the current day's demands change, is that it is a fundamentally community work, by which I think we mean that we focus on building relationships with community members. It's not just about helping you to do something. It's not just about solving your problems, but 
It's about the human-to-human relationship. It's about understanding, not just understanding your issues, but understanding who you are as a person, your lives, your identity, your history, your aspirations, your hopes, and then, of course, your challenges and struggles. But not just about you, but about me too, right? So it's a relational thing. That's the bedrock of it. And then on top of it, I think, is to then see how we can mobilize and organize resources ourselves together with community as a community to see how we can tackle some of the challenges that we are facing so like relocation is a community-wide challenge what can we do about it together and i think the last aspect to the work that is important to us is that it's not uh, kind of just on the ground work that's important community work on the ground is very important to us but also kind of drawing that into advocacy work and systems work i think the idea is that we often get asked the question, you know, you, you're just working with one community. Don't you think of scaling up? Don't you think of doing yeah. more? Other communities might need you. And we say, but well, the precise uh, limitation or the, the precise beauty of this model is that it has to be small. It has to be embedded within a specific locale, a specific community. You, you can't scale and stack it up like other kind of uh, businesses or products or services that you imagine. So this is a limitation. But it doesn't mean that you can't have some skill impact. You can't have wider impact. And to us, kind of bringing our learning and understanding of issues and challenges on the ground into conversation with society, policymakers, other stakeholders in society, right? the advocacy work, the change work, I think that is what uh, it means for us to think about scaling our work as well. I mean, because scalability means different things to different people. And what I like about what you are doing, it's hyper-local. And, you know, from Cassia to Mampati, and we had this conversation way before this podcast, which is like, you know, can you replicate this to other neighborhoods? And it will be individualized projects. There'll be people who are passionate about the community and so on. And I like that. I like that it is not a franchise you know, where you're taking a product and bring to different geographies to sell, so to speak, but you are almost a franchise that customizes the product according to the community you're in. So far from selling the same bubble tea everywhere, you literally are selling a bubble tea based on the preferences of the community and the market you're in to a certain extent. And I like that very much because it's very people-oriented, it's very people-focused and and I can see scalability, but not in the traditional way of one organization. Therefore, I just keep multiplying what I'm doing, but rather have very different types of people going to very different communities and embed themselves. And to a certain extent, just like Kasia, you relocate together with the community wherever they are now in and so on. So, so I find that really quite cool. Give us a sense of the scale of what you are doing. So you mentioned like in Party, you have three blocks. Now, for the listeners who are not very familiar with rental blocks and so on, or communities like that. What does three blocks represent in terms of size, community, demography, and so on? Right, yeah, three blocks differ greatly yeah, uh, exactly. when you're in Mapati versus in Cassia Crescent. It's very different. So in Mapati, we the team works, there's around total of around 250 households at Mapati. I think the team uh, has engaged more than 200 of them. But the kind of regular engagement and working, it's probably between 100 to 150 at any one point of time. Of course, some of the families move out, so then the engagement changes, becomes a bit more remote sometimes. But yeah, by and large, that's uh, kind of the number. The reason why the number is a bit hard to catch is 
for a few reasons, right? That outreach is bread and butter of our work in the sense that usually I think with a lot of social services or even community organizations, you do your outreach once a year, uh, you know, recruiting new members or new clients and you kind of do it when there's a new thing coming up. But for us, outreach is something that is regular. It's always happening, uh, which is why we keep in touch with as many community members as if possible. And even for those that maybe say that, you know, we don't really want to engage with you or we're doing fine. Maybe you should spend your time with other people instead. We still try to kind of say hi once in a while because your circumstances might change. Things might change. You might change your mind also after some time if you see us long enough. So we almost, in both communities that we work with, reach out to everyone. And then the kind of intensity and the kind of frequency of engagement then really depends on each family and also the volunteers that are working with them. So yeah, that's kind of... So give us a glimpse into what you do at MK, right? So you have 200, 250 families in three blocks. Your volunteers come in. So give us a taste and a sense of what the groundwork that you do on a week-to-week basis, on a day-to-day basis. Like you mentioned that outreach isn't a once-a-year thing. Outreach is pretty much your core strategy to a certain extent. So what do you do with the families? You mentioned that they may move out or a new one comes in. How do you stay with them because the situation may change? Do you ask them a fixed set of questions? Is it research-based? You know, so give us a sense of what you do on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I guess the easiest part to start with is the relocation because that affects everyone, right? So on a day-to-day basis, what we do is what we call a relocation needs assessment. This is something that is kind of new. I've learned this from the Dakota to Cassia case and we are kind of trying this out now on the ground trying to understand and have a more systematic way of approaching, identifying and understanding what relocation needs are for the community members. Because in the past, what will happen, we are afraid of what that might happen is that it becomes inconsistent, right? A certain person comes in and asks you a set of questions. Another person comes to ask another set of questions. So in that, it's a bit standardized. But that also means that we get a neater understanding, a kind of community census of what the needs are. Uh, we do this at the start before they, when they receive the relocation news, but they haven't actually been relocated. What this also enables us to do is to then do a bit of service planning, right? What kind of resources we need? How do we need to organize our, our manpower and our people to be able to meet these anticipated needs? But this is just a first round. And then what it helps us to identify is, okay, these are some of the folks that might need more engagement, might need closer follow-up. These people are actually doing okay, so maybe we need to see them less regularly. And then from there, we refine this understanding on a kind of customized personal basis. As we get to know you better, we get to understand what's important to you in this house, what needs to move with you, what doesn't need to move with you, what are your religious beliefs, and what are your religious needs when it comes to uh, relocation and things like that. So in that relocation journey, the relocation assessment is at the start. Alongside, it's also for people to know that they are not alone in this process, right? There are people that are not far away, that are just right at their doorstep to talk through with them their concerns, they have anxieties, they have the anger or the frustration they have. So that kind of emotional support as as this first lands on them for people who have stayed there for a few decades, especially. And then, then there is sort of the administrative or bureaucratic matters like, okay, where are you going to move to? You need to decide. 
you have some tenancy issues that you need to sort out with HDB. You need to make appeals for your case for you to uh, retain a two-room flat rather than downgrade to a one-room flat. So there's all this kind of administrative and bureaucratic matters that we try to tackle up front rather than wait until, you know, the last month of the relocation and then I'm not moving until you, you agree to solve my issue, right? Which happened. Which happens, which happens. And people do say that, right? Don't solve my issues, I'm just not going to move. So we, we try to not let it snowball, try to kind of preemptively work on those issues and work collaboratively with other government agencies like HDB. And once we try to get those things out of the way, then there's the actual move that happens. And that kind of involves for some of the people that we need to bring them around different sites for them to decide. So that's like wrecking, which is your new neighborhood. What's the consideration of your new flat you're choosing? In the past, even I also thought that, oh, it's just about, you know, which floor, which direction it's facing, what are the amenities nearby. But I started realizing that when we bring the community members on these wreckies, they are also looking out for who are my neighbors? How are they like? Are they friendly? Can I talk to them? Are they welcoming? Are there red flags that I see about them that I think, oh, maybe, maybe not. So there, there are more things that we are learning along the way as well. After they decide they've got to go to select their flats, we have an arrangement that we set up with HDB to assist people who have challenges to go down to HDB so that we bring the flat selection to them. It's a collaborative effort that we are doing together. And once you get all of that done, then you actually finally get to collecting your keys to the flat. And uh, once you collect your keys to the flat, then what happens is that we've got to make sure that uh, you are able to pay for the deposit and, and tenancy and, and stuff like that, which is sometimes an issue. Uh, we've got to advise uh, residents and say, you know, when you go down to collect your keys, go and open your utilities account to at HDB Hub so you don't have to make multiple trips. They have to check their flats to, for defects and issues, uh, which are frequent because they're not moving to brand new And your uh, volunteers flats. actually go with them? Yes, in some cases, not all cases. Okay. So it depends on, on their needs. So we might need to... So the kind of most extensive support is some we have to do all of this for, for one person. But for most cases, it's kind of a, a mix and match of different kind of help. Then there's the actual packing. The packing of everything. It's like packing one's life into boxes and then the actual moving, you have to coordinate with the movers. And then there's unpacking too. It's quite funny because sometimes people think, especially the, the newer ad hoc volunteers that join us, they say, okay, we pack, the movers move, then that's it. But then we say, oh, you know, after the movers move, they're not going to help you unpack. And it's day one of moving, right? So you, everything appears in boxes in a two-room flat. You don't have much space. And then the person looks and say, what am I going to do tonight? I need to assemble my bed, I need to get my essentials out. They're on these boxes, can I find them? Especially if you're kind of elderly, one person, you need to move all these boxes around, open. So even the unpacking, setting up the TV, all these things needs to be done. Yeah, so that's kind of the process. And even after they move, right, and unpack, it's also checking in with them, making sure they're doing okay. Are there challenges that arise after they have moved? So that's kind of the just wow. the relocation scope. And on top of that, the relocation doesn't exist in a vacuum, I like to say. You have other issues that happen. People for you, they have health issues. People need to go for surgery, uh, have problems with healthcare abuse. People need financial assistance. They have lost their jobs, not able to work. They have family issues, relational issues. 
the children are involved too. When they move, they need to transfer schools. So a whole host of other issues wow. that needs to be it's addressed. It's really a, a community in itself. Yeah. That you are moving that covers every aspect. What are the demographic like? So the people in my party, is it largely elderly? Is it younger families? Yeah, we have a, it's, the demographics is a little bit different this time around. Usually a community that gets relocated is predominantly elderly, yeah. just because old flats, old people staying there, right? Uh, but this time around, it's still a lot of old people, but we have a lot more young families. So it's a bit atypical in terms of the demographics. I would say we have at least 25% young families. We have more than 100 children running around before everyone was relocated. So there are a lot of young families. And then this is then a new learning area for us. What does it mean when children transfer school? If your kid is going to a SPAT school, what does it mean to find an equivalent SPAT school? You know, so on and so forth. Yeah. One of the terms that we use in research here at the Majority Trust is this idea of counterfactuals, right? In absence of what happens, right? So before you guys step into the breach, before you started Mapati Kakis or Kasia, what would have happened? I mean, it sounds like there's this whole stream of, of things that needs to be done, but you guys are the only one I know doing this. So what happened before you all started this? How do people relocate? And how will all this be done? We ask ourselves this question too. What had happened in the past? The many relocations that have happened without us. I think, I think there are a few things. Firstly, from a historical perspective, I think many of the relocations that have been done in the past few decades happened to a different demographic. You don't have as many seniors back then. They are not seniors yet. They are you know, adults, not yet older adults. So I think... From what we heard from community, and, and our community members who have been relocated, this is not, many of them, it's not their first time being relocated. They have been moved around quite a few times. So they say, you know, in the past, we were younger, we were fine, we were more fit, we were stronger, we were able to handle it. We moved as families, there were hands, even with the families that we are working with, it's a bit easier. They just have more people to support one another in the process. So they might need less like kind of packing and moving support. So I think the demographics matter history. This is a new, in many ways, this is a new wave of relocation in that we are going to see a lot more relocations yeah. coming. That's one. But it's also a new wave of relocation in the sense that it's with a very different demographic, the aging population yeah. that we're dealing with, right? So that's, that's one. And also the younger families as well. Yes. Right. Yeah. Coming into the, into the play. That's one part of it. And then I guess another part of it is also that, of course, people survive the relocation. They have always survived. The, the community members we work with have many resourceful and resilient ways to get through whatever life has thrown at them and they have made it to today. So I think then the, the question or the focus is what cost, at what cost Correct. they have to undertake to get through it. And I think the sensing is that the cost is, can be quite significant. It can look in different ways, right? How much time does it take for you to adapt if you have all this support in place, maybe I think what we are seeing is that it becomes a little bit easier to adapt to your new environment. It's a smoother landing into your new home. And because the idea that something can be done doesn't mean that it cannot be done better. So if someone has really relocated before, that doesn't mean that what you have been helping with has actually made it easier for them and thereby really releasing a lot of stress factor that affects this, some of these families. For some of them, it might mean X amount of working days if they're on a daily wage system. 
It might mean children not missing school. It might mean quite a fair bit of things for the elderly to not worry too much about where things are. So often in absence of things might still work, but the stress level is something that's really unquantifiable. Yeah. That makes nice. it very challenging. Yeah. And, and so a lot of it is processes, right? We are paying attention to processes, people's experiences. But I guess the outcome also is a point that is worth kind of seeing in comparison. In that past, I think the kind of calculus of it's going to be better once you move. Right? When people move from uh, Kampong to public housing, it was difficult too. But I think there were some advantages that came with it. Modern uh, living, uh, modern housing. And when people moved from uh, predominantly rental housing, when we first started home ownership, that's also different. You have a different kind of benefit to it. When the SIRS, when people are SIRS and when you move, there's a different setup. So the incentives and the benefits and what you get out of it, despite the price that you have to pay for it, is quite different. Uh, but what we are seeing is that with the rental housing relocations, that calculus is not, yeah. is not tilting more positive. I think it's yeah. tilting a bit more negative in that uh, you have, basically what we are looking at is that you are not going to build as many rental flats, new rental flats today, because population is decreasing. So you're not going to get that many brand new flats to move people into. So a lot of them, like the Mapati people who are moving now, they are moving to new homes, but they actually are old flats. And with that, it means, you know, what kind of housing environment it is. We had someone who had to move to a place with no lift landing, right? Things like that. And uh, so the housing condition might not be better. It might not be a promised land in, in that way. Uh, and then, of course, other than the age of the flat and the condition of the estate, there's also the space. Flats being smaller by design and also kind of if you have to downgrade, you know, from two room to one room and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. It's interesting because when we think about relocation, we've never thought about it from an aspirational point of view that if you are moving from a kampong to a flat or if you're moving from rental to home-owned, that aspirational looking forward to changes the dynamics of the relocation. What you are working with, often it could, in simple terms, be seen as a downgrade from even in, within the rental circle. You can always move from two, uh, two rooms to one room or a different estate and so on. Now, it's a very, very specialized thing that you're doing. It's, it's, and what I love about it is not something that comes naturally to people's minds, but the more you explain it, the more you share it, the more you realize, wow, actually there is this group of people that, that we don't often see, that is really unseen. If, if we don't know you, if you're not listening to this podcast, then we probably won't know. And we just assume that automatically things happen. How did it start for you? Like, how did it all came to be you being passionate about this particular subject, this particular community? How did you and your co-founders come together? It's like, did you wake up one day and say, it's going to be cast in? You know, so how did it start for you? Right. Yeah, so at the age of, let me see, I think 16, I was interested in the social sector. 16 is when we, we do O-levels, right? So people start actually asking you, what do you want to do? What are you going to study? Yeah. What job are you going to do? I don't know how people answer that question today, but what I thought back then was that, oh, well, I wanted to do something that I thought would be meaningful and worth my time, but I didn't precisely understand what the social sector was. I was 16. I had nothing to do with the social sector. So I decided that I had to dip my foot in and I had to go in and see what this is about and decide from there, whether this is something that I actually like to commit, even if not my entire life, but a good amount of time in my life too, for a start. 
So I volunteer in different places, different areas, different causes, working with children, youth, differently abled communities, uh, seniors. And so I kind of tried different areas and I thought, hmm, that's the point, right? Go, go around, try different things, different projects and learn. And then around probably two to three years after when uh, I've tried most things, then there was this opportunity caught between two homes. It was the documentation project of the move from Dakota to Kasia. So that was not about supporting people relocating. That was about move is happening, document, do interviews, do uh, photos, do videos, uh, helping people understand the issue, right? So this was like culture and heritage. Well, that, was, that was the banner you went under because back then people were fighting for the conservation of Dakota Crescent. But oh, culture and heritage work, you know nothing about it. Let me go and learn something about it. And lo and behold, that was how it started. Uh, so I went in not thinking of doing all this. I went in with that. But then I started to, as I spoke with community members, because we had to go, what happened to you, the relocation, right? Then I realized these things were happening. And like precisely like what you're saying, I knew none of this before I stepped into this community, before I talked to these people. And we very quickly realized that it's not just you and me, but many, many, many people don't know about all this. Even some of the involved stakeholders, like social services, might not have a very good understanding of the challenges with relocation as well because that's not kind of their focus area, right? And it kind of grew from there. And uh, from just doing relocation, helping people settle in, to finding our practice as community work, bringing that groundwork into conversation and advocacy work, and then growing that practice and seeing this is how we believe we can do a meaningful, effective, in some way scalable or sustainable kind of work. It's amazing how life turns for people, right? If you weren't involved in the in-between homes, you probably may not be, or be exposed to uh, the issues that you're working with now and so on. But sometimes life presents itself an opportunity and you say, wow, actually, this is what I'm meant to do to a certain extent. Now, this is your final year in university. So what are you planning to do personally? Do you plan to work on MK full-time? Do you plan to continue in the social sector? What is your dreams and aspiration? I'm, I'm curious because sometimes when we talk to founders or co-founders, we, we tend to see their lives through the lens of the work and then the person itself loses that identity. We're so intertwined with the work that you do. But I, I want to know more about you. What, is your, what are your aspirations? Yeah, thanks for that question. For me, I think you're right. I don't want to be the work and only the work. So I I want to detach. I'm think, in thinking about what I'd like to do moving forward to be a bit detached from the work. The work can continue in itself in the team under the leadership of the really very good people in the team. So that work doesn't have to be forever teetered with me. But I think what remains teetered with me is the practice, what I've just described, the practice of community work uh, together at advocacy work. And that's something that I'd like to continue doing. And what that means is that it can carry me to many different places, I think. It can mean doing something outside the realm of housing relocation, still within the realm of housing, or even outside the realm of housing. And uh, it might mean that I remain in the sector, in, in kind of the space of a grown-up initiative and community organization. Or it might mean seeing whether this practice can be grown and extended into other parts, other spaces in the social sector. So I think I'm quite open to thinking about different places as long as it's somewhere that I can maybe apply my practice, continue to grow the practice and continue to learn. 
you mentioned the word advocacy. How much of what you do at MK is advocacy? I mean, a large part is the practical work of relocation, right? So when people look on the outside, people don't typically associate what you do with advocacy. So I'm curious as to how that is introduced and how do you see what you do as advocacy work? Yeah, I see it actually as both are the same work, right? So when I'm on the ground speaking to community members, I find that that is advocacy work too because I'm understanding what's happening, the subjective experiences, the specific details and the challenges that they are facing and that makes the advocacy work possible. That is the advocacy work. So yeah, I I think in many ways all parts of the work lead to it as long as we kind of intentionally practice it to be in that sense. But the more direct answer, of course, to your question is that uh, there are a few things that we do as part of the advocacy work. The first thing is that we need to know what's going on. The community work provides a very rich, very deep, very personal kind of way of looking, in, a, in some sense, data of what's happening. But we are also looking at a bit more systematic, organized. Maybe it's also there are good things about being a bit detached, uh, kind of data, more objective to seeing what's happening on the ground. So. We are running a research project with a generous support, the SG Strong Fund, to look both quantitatively and qualitatively what happens to people's lives as they get relocated. So we try to see before, how is life like for them? After they move, how, how is life like for them? We qualitatively, we speak to people to understand their stories, their attachment, their histories with the place, what it means for them, what are their aspirations. We talked about aspirations as well as they move. So these are things that may be captured during some of the ground engagements, but this is a way of kind of systematically putting it together and also looking at it. In some ways, it's to move from individual cases. I don't just want to say uh, person A had this problem and person B had this problem, but we're saying on a community level, what's happening. So there's that research part of the work. And then there's also the part of work where it's really very regular, persistent, but also I think principled engagement with different stakeholders, including the various government agencies that are uh, planning and executing the relocation. We think about it in two ways. The first way is kind of micro changes and processes, right? So in each case, when something comes up, we say, could this be a pattern? Could this be an issue that other residents will face? And if that's the case, maybe we need to look for something to change and we have that conversation. But of course, that conversation always starts with first understanding what's going on. Why is this policy the case? What are your considerations behind it? Is there a middle ground that we can find? Things like that. So that's kind of the micro perpetual. We do it as it goes, kind of advocacy or what is often called case advocacy. And then on the larger kind of advocacy, we, I think, think about it as an, an issue, right? Relocation is an issue as a community phenomenon. What do we do about it? Future relocations, what does it mean? Well, wider policy issues, what does it mean? I think in the conversation that we had just now about aspirations and kind of new downgrade and, and getting better, I think we think of part of the advocacy work also as looking at this discourse of housing inequality in that basically what's happening with uh, housing relocation is that this land is taken back for redevelopment and the state is taking back the land for redevelopment with those good intents, right? You can argue about those intents, but it's premised at least as a well-intentioned intent to make better use of that land. 
So on a whole, I guess the idea is that society benefits from this redevelopment, but the people who are paying the price for it are these community members. So I think the idea in looking at what are things that are not just the prices they have to pay, but what good can come up for them in the relocation is part of the discourse of thinking about how this inequality can be kind of uh, reduce this gap, right? That, okay, society benefits, but these people, they also should benefit, not just suffer from the relocation. Incentive is such an interesting word in this regard, right? Like, what does it mean when we are striving for common good, good for society as a whole? If it's a prominent or a really good location, if the block is 12 stories, really we should build it to 40 stories so that more people can benefit from it. Of course, the question is, can we ensure that the people who were here can move somewhere maybe for four years, five years, and then move back to the community? Is that what they really want? One of the things that I I like about what you do is that it's very ground up. It's really on a person basis, on a community basis, it's individualized basis. Not everyone wants the same thing. And just in case uh, listeners think that this only happens at the rental flat level or at community level, it happens even at the private estate level. It's just that because we tend to see on block as a monetary incentive for people who, you know, your condominium is now torn down and then you go to another place. The reality is that within that same block are many different lived experiences. There are older folks in estates that don't want to move. Now they are forced to move as well. So I think it's important when we look at relocation as a whole, which is what's really interesting in what you're doing, that is beyond just seeing it from a commercial point of view, but it's really from an individual point of view. How does it really affect people in very significant ways? And to a certain extent, the advocacy work that you're doing, you use the word micro, micro process or something. Like, micro, like little things that you see that can be changed, micro changes, I think, and you just do it bit by bit. In leadership, we call it small wins. And that's really powerful because it builds momentum. What are some of these micro changes that you have seen that makes you feel, wow, I'm really glad I'm doing this. I, for us in the social sector, we, our whole sustainability isn't money, right? Our whole sustainability is stories. Our whole sustainability is the change that we really fought hard to change and now happening. We, we see lives change. We see people benefit. That's what sustains us in the social sector. So what sustains you? What are the micro changes that you have seen that you're very proud of and say, you know what, I'm so glad we have managed to do that. It'll be, I think it'd be a great story to tell. Yeah. I think first and foremost, it always goes back to the community members, what happens to them. Like you say, the counterfactuals, right? I think thinking about work, being with these people in real life, face-to-face, in the kind of circumstances they are, and thinking, okay, we have done these things, and just taking a moment to imagine what if this wouldn't have happened, why we weren't here. I guess that kind of challenge is scary to imagine that kind of situation, but then to also know that we are here and we're able to offer that small thing. That's also, I think, what keeps us going. That's on the fundamental people-to-people level. There are small wins that we celebrate along the way. Uh, For instance, the relocation allowance has increased from Dakota to Mapati. It's increased from $1,000 to $2,500. I'm not sure how much of it is because I keep harping that the thousand dollars have been there since 1997, at least that's when I was born. So, well, maybe it's time for a change. So, but it has changed and I think it's helpful for residents. We are happy that 
there's a recognition that not everyone can go down to HDB Hub to do the flat selection. So there are alternatives being worked out in terms of bringing the selection to them. We call it remote selection now. Uh, and we even set up an entire kind of a process, collaborative process between community agencies and government agencies to make that work. And so these are the kind of small wins. It's also not just the outcomes, but the process of working together, right? We have disagreements as individuals. We have disagreements as organizations and agencies. But I think those disagreements shouldn't stop us from working together when we can, especially when that collaborative work is to serve people better. It sounds to me there's this general align and common purpose of say, hey, how can we help them? I'm pretty sure there are bureaucracy involved. I'm pretty sure there are bureaucratic nightmares sometimes when you deal with agencies and so on. But it sounds to me that this is genuine people wanting to come together, their stakeholders, government agencies to say, hey, if this can help, maybe this is how we can change the process. Is that your experience? Yeah, I, I think that's, that has to be the starting position, right? Which is that what can we do together? What can we come together to do despite those differences like what you have mentioned? And I think that's a good place to start from because it then doesn't mean that I'm here to assign blame, I'm here to kind of attack each other and make each other look bad. So that's an important place to start and is what makes things work, I think. But more importantly, it's also, I think, what makes room for this tension, uh, living with this tension, which I also consider a small win, this tension of working together to deliver good services and care to community members while at the same time challenging practices, challenge, questioning policies and doing advocacy work. I think there is this very valid concern that this comes into tension, right? If you want to work with these agencies, whether it's government or not, actually, then you might not be able to say some things. You might want to be a bit more careful. Those are reasonable, uh, real issues to grapple with. But I think one way that we have tried to see a possibility to work with this tension is to say that we have to believe that we can work together on what matters, what counts, and we can have our disagreements and we can have our challenging each other and then that. So both coexisting in the same space. Uh, it's not easy. I think the people we work with don't find it the easiest. Sometimes we don't find it the easiest as well, but we are trying and working out to see. I think this is also kind of a healthier state for the ecosystem to be in. It's working together when we need to and when we can, but also not being afraid to say, we should rethink this. There might be a better way to do this. Or there's something wrong here that we need to talk about. You see, what you have articulated, it's a really good frame on what possible collaboration and partnerships with agencies can look like because you are seeing through the lens of tension. There are many who see through it through the lens of barriers. They see through the lens of firewalls, if you will, to say that, you know what, when I'm in advocacy work, therefore, I have my common enemy is now the government or government on the other side say that, you know what, you know, these guys are just about fighting for rights or advocacy or whatever that may be. And then we sort of push each other away. But when you reframe that and you see it from the point of tension, then what you're really talking about is the common enemy is not each other. The common enemy is the challenges that these people are facing. How then can we pull and pull in a way that allow this tension to create positive change. So I think that's really cool because a lot of times when people tend to think about advocacy or they think about working with government, we have this, what I sometimes think is a misplaced fear that, oh, you know, they won't entertain this. They won't. But 
some of our experiences have been rather positive if we can frame it right. And I think the way you're framing it as a tension between two parties really wanting a common objective, it's actually a really great frame to go with. And yeah, I think there's some... So the thing about messy truths is this whole idea that doing good isn't a straight line. It's not a linear path. Definitely it's not. such a... I want to use the word convoluted, but it's really not. It's messy. It's, it's just multiple ways of trying to do good and everybody have their perspective of what good looks like. And everybody wants to do something beneficial, but sometimes what I think is beneficial is not what you think is beneficial. And sad to say, often we see it from our lens and not from the beneficiary's lens. And if you see it from the beneficiary lens, they actually look for very different things that you and I are looking for. So the more we understand their reality, the better. With all this said and done, what's next for MK? What are your planning towards? Is starting to happen? Is there a end in sight? Is there like, you know, once the relocation is finished, we have talked about this being a hyper-local project, organization. Do you see with an angle what the sustainability look like in, in this case? You don't know whether you're going to do this on a full-time basis or not. But that aside, from an organization point of view, do you see what you do at MK or Acacia really building towards something permanent? And with that, if that is going to be the case, then how are you thinking about sustainability? Well, I think the thing about this Mapati project is that people are not moving to one community, right? They're actually being relocated to different parts of the island. So that makes the continuing the work not just challenging because of the work, but inherently by design. Unlike the Dakota to Cassia State is a really bit different. So this is why from the onset, we have really been quite clear that this project does have an end date, which is that after the last person has moved out plus one year, they were committed to following through with this residence uh, community members for another year just to make sure they're settled and they're doing fine. But, you know, really who knows what happens, right? So I think that's kind of the plan for now. We're going to see what's going to happen in the next year or two. And also what the community members themselves are saying. How would they like us to continue, not continue? What our team members feel? Do they want to continue even maybe on their individual basis? Can they be associated with another local organization in the new areas that these community members have moved into? So there are many of these possibilities that we are exploring. But in terms of kind of the organizational and work uh, sustainability and moving forward, I think there are two main things that we think about. The first thing is this idea that this work is work. It's currently unpaid work that is heavily dependent on volunteers. And I think in the different conversations that we are having, right, we talked about that housing inequality conversation just now. And now this conversation is about dependence on volunteers. I think in most phenomena, there's no binary good or bad, right? It's always about excessiveness and balance i think that's one frame to look at it another frame is with that frame it also means at a certain point it tilts towards healthy or unhealthy and my concern is that the continued sole dependence on volunteers only to do relocation support work to do this kind of community care work broadly right even without the relocation but as community work as unpaid labor is going to be quite challenging it's challenging for the volunteers, but I think it's also challenging for the sector and society for long-term sustainability. The last thing I would like to see is that 
we have a new labor force that we are now dependent on. We have already learned from a lot of challenges depending on our migrant labor force. And I don't want this volunteer labor force to then become that similar uh, kind of challenge that we have. So I think we need to think about that. It's a complex issue. There are many considerations. It's not binary, like I said, but we need to have that conversation, right? And in the context of relocation, I think what that means is that we have to think about how this work can be funded, resourced appropriately, a blend of full-time, part-time workers with volunteers together to do that work. And also considering that there's not just one or two or three, but many more communities down the road that would be relocated. So that's the first part of it, the dependence on volunteers and then also the appropriate resourcing. But very intertwined with that, which I consider to be a small win as well, is this idea that we are building capacity, this idea that we are deepening the practice and we are creating a sort of understanding that might not be uh, copy and pasted, right? But at least something that we can refer to when we think about how to support a community as they are relocated. And already we are talking to different friends in the sector who says, I'm serving this neighborhood and it's quite old, eh? it's coming, eh? it's going to come. So what are we going to do? And we say, this is what we have learned. I think we are committed to seeing how we can organize what we have learned into something that people can refer to, a capacity that can be built, can be shared, so that when other communities are relocated, when other people are ready to step up to support those communities, there is something, they're not starting from zero, right? So in our case at Mapati, we aren't starting from zero. We had something to borrow from in the Dakota to Kasia case. And we hope that as this continues, it becomes a practice of deepening that capacity. You build the body of knowledge. Yes, right. right. So extent. we share that with the next team, next community, and hopefully they are committed to the same you know, values and principles to continue building and continue sharing. And that helps when there's finally resourcing uh, that comes in, then there is a model, I think, that people can work with, can adapt from. And with the resourcing, I think it makes it even better. So that capacity building on relocation work and community work, I think, is a small win for us. We, we learn so much in this process and we think that this is very important, helps build that sustainability and skill. But at the end of the day, like what we were talking about before we started on this podcast, it's about growing people. And I think what's important to me, I, I forgot to mention that the Mapati team is more than 100 people now, more than 100 volunteers. In the process of this project, uh, by the time it ends, would probably be three or four years as a total project. That People come in, they see something that they haven't seen, they learn something that they didn't know, and they learn new ways of doing things and new ways of relating to people and social issues and community issues. and they might not continue doing community work or social work, but wherever they go, they bring this skills with them. Yeah. They bring this understanding with them. They always have this in mind, these stories, these experiences, these people, and not forget them and actually bring them to do even more good in yeah. wherever they go. I want to end our time together with a couple of observations. And then I want to really have you close off our time, really speaking to other fellow founders who are listening in or founders want to be. So I'll start with a couple of observations. Probably one of the most important thing that what you guys have been able to do, we can call it a small win or just a progress that you've done, 
is to make this whole concept and this whole terminology of relocation on the radar of people working with communities. Labels are a very powerful thing. If we don't give label to things, things sometimes don't exist. One of the work that we do at the Majority Trust is to find unseen gaps and shine a spotlight on them because if, until unless people start paying attention to it, then there is no resources that go in. Philanthropists and donors don't see the need for it uh, or there's no innovation to a certain extent. What you have done, I think, is to put a label to an unseen gap uh, over decades now because relocation is happening every single time. It's just, we, we just assume that it happens. And I think that's a very, very powerful achievement by you and your team to be able to put a label. So now anyone that's working with communities and there's going to be relocation is now become a topic. Oh, I need to think about relocation. I need to think about how these people are doing. I need to call Tinto and the team to come in and say, how can we work together? And so on and so forth, because now there is someone actually working at it. So I think that's really cool. The second observation is the thing you're talking about, which is volunteers. Because you're right that, to a certain extent, I don't think we... I certainly hope that we don't see volunteers as a workforce. Volunteerism, to me, has always been a two-way street. It's never a one-way free labor, meaning that I need help, therefore you come. I've always told every volunteer that works with us, both at Halogen and SMU and here, that you gain as much out of a volunteer experience as we benefit or the beneficiaries benefit from it. So to me, I think volunteers will continue to be a, a major part in the nonprofit ecosystem because we just don't have the kind of resources. But I think there needs to be an executive management group, uh, full-time people who believes in building this so that you can scale. There's only so much volunteers can actually put time and effort in. But if you guys really want to go to the next level, just like any founders who want to scale the operation, sometimes we just got to take the blind leap of faith and say, you know what, I'm going to make this to my career. I'm going to just build for the next few years, give the prime of my life to building something because this is what I'm passionate about. And I'll continue to work with a hundred over volunteers who, who make things happen. And I think that's a wonderful partnership. And it's not, like you say, it's not either or, it's not a binary conversation. It's one that benefits, I think, everyone to a certain extent. And I think the last observation really, it's just how systematically you're going about doing things. You you break it down, you make it into processes they are working with in what most business consultancy world is really about breaking down into processes you can replicate, you can optimize, you can you know, build in such a way whereby, oh, actually now I have a package. I can then take this into another place. And that package isn't a product, it's a way of thinking, which is what you are after. Knowing that in every community that you go into, you now have a DNA. You have a culture of working with people on an individual basis. You have a team of volunteers who may be passionate about that. And I find that extremely exciting because you are basically exporting and replicating culture. You're replicating a way of thinking, a way of seeing things. And I think that's powerful. Most people tend to build things into products. But the problem with products is that in absence of a market, then the product becomes obsolete. But cultures are different because culture is a living, growing organism. You grow with it. You make it better. You make it thriving. You make it exciting and dynamic. So I enjoy that. I enjoy the, the conversation because I can break it down and say, wow, actually, these are the, the cool things that you guys are doing. And I can only imagine with given more resources, given the right level of resource and then partnership, I think there is a lot of good you guys can do. So those are my three very quick observations from the time we have. 
I do want to end our time with you. I won't say giving advice. Again, advice is like, you know, sometimes we say, oh, you know, what's your advice for founders? Yes, we, we do ask that. But, but for you, I don't think it's about that. I, I really think it's about what would be the one thing you will share with your fellow co-founders for, for them to think about, for them to consider, for them to, because we are all on this learning journey together, right? What would that question be? What would that conversation be? What would that thought that you want to leave behind to all our listeners listening in that either has helped you all this while, that sustain you all this while, or that's captivating you currently? Yeah. I think what I have to share is very much related to what you summarized just now in the three points. I think I have two things to say. I think the first thing is that this kind of a systematic breaking down and organizing and kind of being able to talk about it, like the way that we talk about or what we've talked about today, this is not the start, right? At the start, this is not, we're not able to have the language, the words. I always kind of share that when we first started, the first four years at least, you know, when you have that. So we are new and in the sector and in the community, right? So you've always got to explain to people what, who we are, what we do. So that's a small paragraph in my email signature. And, you know, it changes every half a year. Every half a year it changes. And we're like, oh, <laughs> you got to change. You got to think about what we're doing. got to rephrase this. This is no longer accurately encapsulating what we are saying. And it took us a long time. It took us four, I think, good four years to arrive at something more stable and say, yes, this is, this is what we mean. This is what we are doing. And even then, you, you still changes along the way. So I think we don't settle into these organized frames and even have the language and words to be able to talk about this right at the start. It's something that we built along the way. It's something that we built along the way because we have to be committed to documentation. We have to be do- uh, committed to reflection. And I think this is what like this conversation offers me the opportunity to do. I'm consolidating my thoughts, talking to people and organizing what my experiences are, what my lessons are along around these teams. And this, as we do this more often, I think it helps us get a clearer idea of what we are actually doing, where we are going, what we can continue to do. And the last thing that I'll say is that I think what you were talking about on how we have made relocation an issue or a conversation. I think we have made it so not, not because we are amazing at doing what we do. I'm not the best in communications and marketing uh, and social media. But I think we, we managed to achieve some of that because we have helped to move an issue from something that no one really relates with yep. to an issue that there is something for some, everyone to relate with to some extent. So it's making a conversation and kind of exclusive you versus me or you only and me only conversation, a conversation that matters to everyone. That, well, you might not be living in a rental flat, so you don't have to go through rental flat relocation, but you are living in Singapore who is going through redevelopment at an insane pace. And you've got to think about this. You've got to think about what home means to you. Someday you might lose your home. You might be asked to move out of your home. Even if it's not you, your parents, your grandparents, so it then changes a bit, right? It becomes something that everyone sees that we have a stake in. And I think that's what living in society means to that beyond the individual experiences is also our collective experiences and our collective concerns. And uh, we can only tackle these things when we get together in conversation and see that there is a part of us in all of these things. Ting Chung, 
time always runs out when we're having fun. It's been a really wonderful conversation. I've learned a lot. And I think listeners listening in will get a lot out of this podcast. Now, if there are people listening and wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Yeah, they can uh, get in touch with us through our uh, email. Well, okay, let me think. Yes, uh, my email would be uh, jingzhou, J-I-N-G-Z-H-O-U at crt.sg. And if they want to find out more about what you guys are doing, is there a website they can go to? We are hoping to launch a website for Mapati Kaki soon, so stay in tune, stay in touch. I think it will come out soon. Very cool. Yes. And we will put those, all those in the show notes yes. uh, and we'll update it the moment it goes live. You have been listening to The Messy Truths. Thank you.